if your support for the cause of black lives is contingent upon no black person ever making you angry, then you don't support black lives. You don't. You simply want to be in control of their oppression. Uh, damn. That 14 second, 14 carat nugget of gold was Jack Archer. Mm, who's Jack Archer? The person that just said that quote, nerd. You want more of a resume than just spitting molten fire? Well, it's fine because they've got one. Jack Archer is one of the founders of Progressives of Spokane County. They sit on the Spokane Human Rights Commission. They're a board member of SCAR, Spokane Community Against Racism. And they're also a commissioner at the Washington State LGBTQ Commission. Jack was nice enough to chat with me for about an hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes, something like that the other night about a lot of different things with a lot of nuance and complexity. But if I had to sort of like distill it into a single sentence, it kind of all orbited around how white people love telling people of color what to do, even when it's how to emancipate themselves from the oppression of white people. It would be funny if it weren't so evil. This is absolutely an episode about protest and Part of the reason I'm acting so weird right now is that I just spent like 10 straight hours editing this damn thing, trying to get it ready for tomorrow's protest so that you could give it a listen and go into it with a little bit of the fire that Jack Archer gave me. And all orbiting around protest, we talked about the big white supremacies of murder and genocide and the little or white supremacies of things like, oh, say, consolidating your diversity department from several completely autonomous programs down to one little mashed up Oreo of a program. Eastern Washington University, I'm looking at you. Oh, and we also talk a little bit about scandal. But look, today's all about Jack, so I just want to get right into it right after the break. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 7, The Fire This Time. This time, motherfucker. Jack Archer, thanks so much for coming on range. Uh, I guess we've known each other for a little while, and we've only... Every time we have a... We haven't had a ton of conversations, I would say, but every time we do, uh, I've found you to be just a super thoughtful fun person to talk about the world fun and kind of like a conspiratorial way uh, <laughs> and yeah, talk about the world yeah and aspirational politics and, and movement stuff and and you've got a really good sense of how all the pieces move in this town and uh it's a skill i've noticed that a lot of activists have but they can't all talk about it in a in a like really deep way and you have that ability as well so i think uh the journalists are really good at understanding how structures work. And I think what I'm realizing is that activists have the same skill, but they also do all that plus like some pretty complex emotional work that I don't know that journalists always do, uh, or, and they have to just to be successful. So I think it's anyways, when, when these protests began, uh, I wasn't going to talk about this at all unless I could talk about it with somebody like you. So I appreciate you coming on. Hey, my pleasure. It sounded like you almost wanted to say something about the emotional work. Yeah, I w- well, I was going to say a bit about the journalism piece. I actually have like a small background of, of doing college journalism. So I was in college for like seven years and for five of <laughs> it happens. And for five of those seven years, I was either a staff writer or a section editor overseeing other staff writers. And 
granted, college journalism is not the same as like the job that, you know, legacy print journalists are doing right now or, you know, people who are taking photos of stuff or on the web or anything, but it definitely taught me and I think she prepared me um, to look at things from various angles and whatnot. Um, so when you talked about that skill that journalists have, I was like, oh yeah, definitely. Like that's, that's a huge part of the skill set. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, you're getting there's like a little weird feedback happening. I don't know if it's breaking in real quick. Jack started out on their porch, uh, but they were giving me big Cylon vibes, so we asked to move it indoors. I assume that uh, a lot of this is going to be edited <laughs> later. Heavily. Basically, anytime I talk, it's going to be heavily edited. So, yeah, <laughs> I'll do the same for you. I promise. Back indoors. Is it better? Yeah, it's a lot better. Okay. Yeah, it must just be the outdoors. Yeah. Okay. So, just, I mean, let's start off. Just how are you doing? How are you doing? Ooh. Um, I, like one, thanks for asking Two, I have no idea how to answer. Uh, <laughs> everything is weird more than just, you know, terrible things happening. There's just like that sort of pall of like grief and anger and frustration that I know a lot of people are feeling that I'm certainly feeling. But in addition to that, there's also, I'm watching, um, as the world sort of reorganizes itself towards this reality. And I'm yeah. seeing, it was the same thing with COVID is you see the opportunists come out and they they play their roles. They do things that they think will lead to them getting a come up. And the the activists come out, the, the single issue folks come out and, and harp on the intersection of their single issue and like racial violence in this case, which I actually think is has great value. I, I say harp, but I mean that in a, as far as their commitment, not that the, what they're saying is a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's been a little bit exhausting. If I'm honest. I'm I'm a little bit exhausted, but I am also uh, cautiously optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear because I it's it's been a one-two punch of opportunism. It feels like to me. Mm. Uh, you know, it, the COVID stuff had me kind of at my wits' end. Uh, mm-hmm. By no means everybody, but the, it's some of similar actors actually. And I don't know. I've been having these minor meltdowns, and people are. And I think it's, again, people who are much, much more in the, the activist space than I am that are probably used to this dynamic playing out. It sounds like it's mm-hmm. it happens every time. Yeah, no, definitely. Like Paul is just like, chill out, dude. You're fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> or it might not be fine, but whatever you're doing right now is not helping. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Paul. Um, I mean, yeah, it's anytime there's chaos, there's like this moment of there's this opportunity for things to change rapidly and everyone wants in on it whether they want in on it personally because they see their own star rising or whether they want in on it like in a, in a movement kind of way where they're like, this is our movement's moment to like get this thing we've been asking for. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. So for the listener, Mm -hmm. Jack and I talked earlier this week. I thought it was, I thought it was like a month ago, but it was actually just two days ago. Um, (laughs) And we have just sort of spitballed some things to roughly talk about. This isn't going to be like a standard journalistic interview. We're just going to have a conversation. But now back to Jack, I (laughs) apologize. I think I'm going to ask you a question that's going to come out of left field. But it it just occurred to me five minutes ago after a call with two other um, black friends, one of whom was my wife, who I love dearly. Uh, You piqued my curiosity. What role do you think black anger is going to have in fixing our broken country? Um, I, a main role? <laughs> yeah. 
um, part of the reason why our country is broken is because a whole segment of our population, like Black people in particular, have been denied the right to full humanity, which includes full expression of emotion. Yeah. Like, let's let, let's talk about anger for a second. Um, or let's just talk anger for a second. A few weeks ago, we were observing protests of people who wanted to reopen their economies, wanted to get haircuts, wanted to get... I mean, everyone talks about, you know, Karen wanted a haircut, right? Like, there was a stereotypical image of somebody who was trying to do some non-essential activity, um, and they're angry at the government for keeping them from doing that. And so they, they hit the streets, and they hit um, government buildings, and they showed up with their guns and their chants and their signs and they yelled and they expressed themselves. And I'm sure it was very cathartic for many of them. Right. Absolutely. And that was rewarded with, uh, at least it seems like it was rewarded with an acceleration of reopenings in Spokane County. It was definitely rewarded. It was absolutely rewarded. Yes. Continue, please. Furthermore, like it wasn't as though anyone came and said, Oh, you know, this isn't the way to protest this. This There was no discussion about the method by which people pro- that people used to protest. I mean, there was some commentary, especially on the left, about like, oh, you know, all these people and their guns, da da da. Or they're acting in a very threatening manner. Um, there was some discussion about whether or not the issue they were protesting was worthy of protest. But very little airtime was spent saying, you know, we should really discuss how constructive this method is. Walking up to both the courthouse and city hall, beginning mm-hmm. in one place and going to the other with, mm-hmm. you know, AR-15 type weapons. Like, Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And, and whether you agree with them or you disagree with them, you know, I, I personally disagree, but I, I didn't believe that they didn't have a right to do what they were doing. Sure. I thought their point was wrong. <laughs> uh, but nobody said... How dare they do this? Why are y'all so angry? Why are you upset? <laughs> yeah, no one said that. Nobody said, you have a good point, but your methods are wrong. No one said that. So let's fast forward um, and we look at the vast range of protests that, that Black folks have engaged in to speak out against the horrors of police brutality. And, you know, we have everything from Kaepernick taking a knee, which apparently is not the right kind of peaceful protest, to people blocking traffic, which is not the right kind of peaceful protest, to people marching on buildings with signs and yelling. And that itself is also not always considered the right kind of peaceful protest. So when finally things hit a boiling point and people stop worrying about white feelings and white approval and having the right kind of protest, the conversation that's had is, oh, but their methods. Absolutely. Oh, but they're, you know, is this effective or not? And honestly, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get sucked into a commentary about the destruction of property because violence is against people and property is secondary to that, in my opinion. And I, I think it's a distraction, a waste of time. What I will say is that I find it interesting that when black people start to express anger of any kind, it is condemned. There'll be all this conversation about like, should people have been burning things or whatever, whatever, whatever. And that's all distraction because the fact is every type of peaceful protest that expressed authentic black anger at our treatment in this country has been condemned, right. no matter how peaceful it was. Right. So so I think that black anger is is something that America's just gonna have to come to grips with. Um, in order for any of this healing process to happen. Like, that's just the reality. Well, and so let me follow that up with, do you believe and I'm, that there's been a degree of... So let me, sorry, I'm not going to try to make that a rhetorical question. So the, the whole reason this came up was mm-hmm. my wife, who has been expressing more rage and anger about this than anything I've ever seen in our 12 years together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my incredibly good friend, Carl, who I've literally never like uh, the sort of dude who wouldn't hurt a fly, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the dictionary, his picture would be there. I've never seen him even slightly flustered, <laughs> let alone angry mm. is 
justifiably very fucking angry. Mm-hmm. And I chatted with him just over text afterwards because you know we were all on this call together. And and I said, hey man. And he said, I I very and I hope he doesn't get mad at me for saying this, but he said I've been very angry, or I've always kept it in because I didn't want to make other people uncomfortable. Yeah. And now he's not keeping it in. And he's like, and I, and it's good because I think this is how change could happen. And so I just wanted to get mm-hmm. your thoughts on that because it's also a lot easier to tone police or shut down or just arrest mm-hmm. a handful of people who are angry. But if mm-hmm. everybody's, if everybody's angry, angry, yeah, you, you can't, you can't quite keep that down. Um, yeah, no, I 100% agree. I also think I really want to affirm uh, what your friend Carl said. I don't know a single black person who does not self-censor their negative emotions. Not one. Wow. Um, that, that is just kind of how it is. There's this amazing, I say amazing just cause I personally feel it. Um, James Baldwin quote where he says, and I'm going to paraphrase badly here, but to be a Negro in this country and to be, um, relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost, almost all of the time. And part of the rage is this, it isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all of the time in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference, the indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance. Something like that. Yeah. And I have felt the truth of that particular quote since literally my teen years. Um, I don't think that you can be a black person in America, be aware of the world around you and not be angry pretty much all the time. And it just kind of becomes a background noise to your life uh, because you have to live it, right? Like you can't just exist in the rage all the time. And then something happens and brings it up to the surface, like, you know, lava from a volcano. And, but we've been taught to censor all of that as a matter of professionalism, as a matter of survival, as a matter of maintaining relationships and keeping people comfortable, especially those of us who are in very white spaces and don't necessarily have the luxury of, of avoiding those who simply wouldn't get it. Well, and also in order to stay alive, right? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I had this memory of going to a bar with some friends a while back. <laughs> and it was me and a couple of friends who I don't usually hang out with. And it, we're, we're a group of mostly black people. And two of my friends get into an argument. Like, I, like an argument. Like, they just start yelling and da-da-da. And, like, because of who these people are, I know that at the end of this, it, they're they're going to figure it out. It'll be fine. Like they're just deeply emotive people, but like it's loud, you know, and it just, it is what it is. So uh, we spill out to the sidewalk and they're still talking and they're still carrying on, blah, blah, blah. This white dude comes by and like tries to step into the situation and to like, it's late at the night. I've had a few drinks, but I just basically like tell him to move along. Like, this is not your problem. <laughs> I like keep stepping, sir. Like, just, <laughs> like, just completely push him along. And then a few minutes after that, a police car rolls up and this guy comes out. And I swear, Luke, I immediately slipped into the zone of like, all right, time to pass by. Hello, officer. Everything is fine here. Now, my mm-hmm. friends, we we're just having a conversation. It is fine. I'm several drinks deep. All right. I'm not sober, but I am standing up straight, looking him in the eye and pasting a smile on my face to get this guy to move along. Yeah. You know, yep. and it's an it's an instinct. You know how to do it. Whatever I was feeling. And my friends did the same thing. The ones who were fighting everyone. We all just whoop, to attention. All right. 
time to take care of this. Yeah, yeah man. And I haven't had a lot of uh, run-ins, but I was down at WSU with uh, a buddy who went to school down there and who was in a frat and a similar thing happened and a cop had to like physically break two frat dudes up. Mm-hmm. And one, they didn't ha- they didn't feel any of that. The cop was removing one guy from the scene and he was still trying to get at his buddy. You know? Oh my so God. It's just completely different, right? <laughs> completely different. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I, I personally, I pee a little whenever I even see a cop car. So that's not me. I'm not saying that's me, but I'm saying we'll probably talk about this again and again mm-hmm. and again throughout this conversation. But there's a qualitatively different valence to how white people think of the cops as black people think of the cops, right? Absolutely. Um, it's funny because I, I saw a meme or something on Facebook that was like, white people stop stop telling black people that you're also afraid of the cops. Like, it's not the same fear. Um, I don't remember exactly what the context was, but I remember having this conversation with a friend of mine. And I was like, yeah, I, I used to be afraid of the cops. And when I was afraid of the cops, it was a matter of the financial hardship this ticket might result in, uh, you know, yeah. which is like real, right? You know, if you get a ticket totally. and it, it, you know, puts you out a couple hundred bucks and you're living light, living tight, that can really mess with a family. But... <laughs> is not the same as when I see a cop, I get scared because I might get arrested, be separated from my family, be separated from my home, lose my job, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. You know, when I see a cop, I realize that this could be a fatal interaction and I'm not going to generalize for everybody. I don't think every single black person feels the same level of fear around police. I don't think every white person feels the same level of fear around police, but I think it's important to recognize the trends in those two different experiences and the trend amongst white people tends to be, although it's not always, you know, fear of hardship, fear of, you know, inconvenience, maybe even just fear of a really uh, difficult social interaction where somebody in authority is yelling at you, like nobody likes that. Um, Yeah, it's 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 like an economic peril versus a mortal peril. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and those there are two different levels that we're that we're working on. It's not universal, but it is the trend that we've got to recognize. Yeah. Okay, so well, now we're going to go from anger to frustration because I thought the, <laughs> the, conversation, <laughs> the conversation we had the other night really kind of started cracking, mm-hmm. crackalacking when, uh, when you were like, here are my three frustrations. And so <laughs> maybe, you know, we could, I thought we could go, uh, go through those maybe. Like, uh, sure. You have to help me out. Cause I don't even remember everything I was frustrated with. <laughs> oh, I, I wrote them down for sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Well, the first thing, and you said you already you didn't want to talk about it, but I do think it does bear a little bit of talking about. But the property thing, how mm-hmm. the when the protest happened, mm-hmm. it's peaceful at, at daytime, and then and, mm-hmm. and honestly, this is like you can this is where you can see like the journalists, the the the, the sort of mind of the media being like, oh, what story are we telling right now? And it yeah. immediately it's like as as the sun went down, the mood changed, mm-hmm. and different mm-hmm. people came, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there's a there's a broken window at the Nike store. Dun dun dun. And the the whole conversation shifts. Yeah. And the the previous conversation isn't merely backburnered. It's not even on the table anymore. Mix that metaphor. It's not even on the stove anymore. It's not just backburnered. It's off the stove. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure I know where to start with that. I think think first off, I'm just going to say part of why people are breaking stuff is because they recognize that American society as a whole will make as big or a bigger deal about the loss of property and the loss of, of wealth or whatever than they will about the loss of black life. And so agree with it, disagree with it, whatever. Part of what's going on is that people are saying, oh, oh, you won't cry for us. Let me give you something to cry for. 
right? Right. You know, like how how many times have we observed, you know, in, in a, an atrocity, right? Or an ongoing situation. Like let's like let's talk about Flint. Flint is not solved yet. <laughs> That's an ongoing human rights problem. And people are just chill. Right? Like like people are chill about it. But somebody torches a target, you know, full of goods that, you know, have the potential to bring profit to a company that has more than ample enough insurance to cover the loss. Right? right. And people are so upset and they feel like their community has really been injured. And I'm like, you know what? Your community is not in stuff. The fact that you see the loss of stuff as community injury, but the loss of people as secondary to that or something that shouldn't, that can only be talked about after we address the loss of stuff tells us what you value more. And, and what's frustrating to me is, is that people are allowing, allowing this weird sort of respectability politics of like, oh, you have to do this right to get in the way of the actual message being told. At some point, how someone says something isn't as important as what they're saying. Right. Um, so, I mean, there's, that's, that's just a whole thing. And I, I think we really need to, to recognize that uh, if we let ourselves get sucked into a discussion about anything other than black life, and the loss of black life. Right. We are being distracted. Right. You can have the academic discussion about how to, uh, how to most effectively achieve your goals in an oppressive society later. Mm-hmm. But also maybe the people who are doing the oppressing don't get to have that discussion. Yeah. You know, I, I, I got feelings on that. I don't know if I'll dive into, <laughs> into all of that right now, <laughs> but um. But I, I definitely think that there, there are a lot of people talking who just need to be listening at this moment. Yeah. So I think what you were, you started getting at it earlier. And one of these frustrations is that in these moments where it's absolutely, you're absolutely shocked mm-hmm. with like the death of George Floyd, mm-hmm. uh, it overshadows the mundane racism that happens all the time. That oh, you, absolutely. But then that also sort of, you I, did you talk, you had a pyramid metaphor, didn't you? I think I did. Oh, yeah, I did. Okay, so. <laughs> Is it fun listening to us remember our conversation from the other night, guys? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that is, that is to go back to another frustration, uh, one of the, the things that can be really disheartening, um, especially as someone who, like, lives at the intersection of multiple oppressions, which is, like, anybody who is okay. black and something else, right? So yeah. anyone who's black and a woman, black and disabled, black and, like, Like, this is the ongoing frustration that the loss of a black man's life, like George Floyd, something that should never have happened, is going to sweep up everyone's imagination and everyone's going to, like, and when I say everyone, I'm I'm exempting the black community from this. Like, I'm just talking about, like, the media attention, the the sort of general imagination, right? And everyone's like, oh, this is the thing. This is the thing. And they think that it's the only problem that needs solving. And I think that it's the only issue that, that exemplifies racism right now. Um, and that if we could only prevent this one type of thing from happening, racism would be solved. You know, like we're doing fine, except for the occasional extrajudicial murder. Um, and right. it's absurd because those murders, police murder, like the murders committed by police are at the very top of the pyramid of white supremacist violence. Right? Like that is... Right. That is the pinnacle right there is just straight up murder supporting murder before that is even acceptable 
There are all these things that we think of as mundane that are still going on, that have to be dealt with, that have to be sort of attacked as the buttress is holding up the worst possible atrocities. And so, so there's this graphic that I, I didn't invent. I, I can't remember who uh, came up with it. So maybe I'm going to link to it or something later, but there's this graphic. Yeah, please. Um, called like the pyramid of hate or something like that. And at the bottom, at the very bottom are things like, you know, jokes, like racist jokes, yeah. you know, right. and uh, silly stereotypes, you know, not even like, like, like the serious stereotypes, like at the very bottom, it's like, you know, blacks play basketball better, you know, or whatever. Like that's like yeah. just silly yeah. little things that are like, okay, yeah, okay, sure. Whatever. Um, and then it builds up. It, be- it becomes uh, systemic, right? As those little things are accepted, little notions about who black people are, are, ex- are accepted, then they become systematized. And you see, you know, uh, lower home loan rates or whatever. You see redlining. Right. You right. see all this other kinds of institutional violence in education and in finances and in property ownership and and things like that. And then you move up the pyramid, right? Until you get to to laws and things, right, that that actually are intended to to pen in a population and limit their freedoms, limit their movement, limit their impact on society. Right. And then finally, at the very top, that's when you get systematized murder. Um, And actually I believe technically at the top of, of the pyramid I'm thinking of it's actually like um, like mass extermination, I believe is what's up there. Sure. So I guess we aren't at the top yet, but, and, you know, hopefully we'll not see that again, but to, to ignore everything else below it as though it somehow matters less is to ignore the scope of the, of the problem is to be honestly rather myopic. Well, and to ignore the fact that, um, if it weren't for those other things, propping it up, the top things, the worst things wouldn't be possible. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because it, it's, it strikes me that it's, it is those little, they're basically little enabling acts. They're little things that like just, just function to dehumanize a little bit at a time. And it's mm-hmm. jokes. And you can say, oh yeah, jokes aren't that big of a deal, dude. Just like chill. But like, that's literally exactly how the alt-right has sort of risen. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's how they're actually winning because they're able to deflect the true character of what they're thinking about with just these like cute little jokes Names or and jokes, you know, yeah. things that deflect real meaning. And it's, it's normalized. It, I mean, it, it was already normalized in our culture, but the way they're yeah. sort of normalizing themselves into their culture, into our culture is by mm-hmm. taking things that are unacceptable and making them just like bit by bit by bit more mm-hmm. acceptable, just like a little bit at a time. Creeping over that, you know, their edge of the overturned window. Right. And one of the things you brought up is specifically and very topically and very locally ah, white supremacist. The multicultural uh, coalition yeah. and the work that they're having to do at Eastern. Yep. So talk, talk about what you, you talked about the Black Lens story, um, mm-hmm. the story that ran in the Black Lens newspaper. A lo- for people that don't know, it's a local uh, black owned newspaper serving the, the black community. I think, was there a new, did they just announce that the diversity uh, department at, Gonzaga, or at Eastern is just getting completely gone away or is it still getting consolidated so i i'll be honest i'm not 100 sure like i am slow on the updates about like what is the most current today but i can speak to the history of what's been going on um which is that at eastern washington university they announced sort of underneath in between all the covid news so that like a lot of people didn't notice at first 
frankly, because it's a bit of a buried lead, that they were going to consolidate all the, what they refer to as, quote, diverse programs. Um, oh, my God. By which they meant African Amer- Africana studies, uh, Chicanx studies, Native American studies. I think they're all called studies. I might. I hope I'm not misnaming too many programs here. And also women's and gender studies. So are these are these actual, like, are these unique departments at the school currently yeah. or, or so, in the past? Okay. So the wage program, like the, the women's and gender equality uh, studies program, is like its own thing. You know, offering classes, offering, they're, they're all basically minors. Uh, or some of, a couple of them might have been majors, but they were mostly minors that you could get, right? And there was this RCST major. It was like a race and culture studies program, like major that you could get by just like dabbling in all of these, right? Okay. Um, but they were separate programs, you know, with different professors and different courses of study, like as just like chemistry and English, right? So Chicanx studies was focusing on, you know, the, 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 the Chicano movement and history in the United States, right? And then women's and gender equality studies was focusing on women and gender, right? And just like the constructs of gender and also some women's history and like theories of feminism and that sort of thing. And then Africana studies, you know, I took a couple classes from Africana, from the Africana studies department. And it was things like black women's heritage. And there was a class that I took on hair. Um, And and part, and part of the reason those need to be, or it's, better and mm-hmm. I- ideally that they're they're separate things is that there's something very culturally relevant about hair mm-hmm. when you're talking about african-american existence mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily exist if you're a chicano person or a mexican person or i mean it's definitely going to be different right like it's, it's just yeah. gonna be a different context in the united states right and like uh to be clear also i feel like what people have to recognize is that these are not interchangeable things these are like the history of Chicanos in the United States is not just like black people, but lighter. Like it's, <laughs> it's different, <laughs> you know, like it's its own thing. And all of these right. programs right, like came up because as history is currently taught in higher education, just in general, in the United States, it is a very white cisgender heteronormative view of history. And so these other programs were developed to say, hey, like, there's actually more to history than what there's more to all of the fields than what we're being taught. So it's a weird, actually, sort of when you think about it, it's like a segregation model. Um, but it was it was like if you imagine a world where there were no black water fountains, there were only white water fountains and black people came along and said, you know what? OK, we're going to erect our own water fountain. That's what we're going to do. Right. Like, we can't be at yours. So we're going to erect our we're going to have our own. And That's then, really fa- so yeah, they like this was this getting your own department at a university. You're saying is like <laughs> is getting to segregation mm-hmm. <laughs> from something yeah. worse. That's what yeah. you're saying. It's getting to segregation from erasure. Right. Exactly. It's like now we exist. Holy shit! <laughs> for you to be separate from. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to consolidate that is to essentially say that there is not enough meaningful distinction between the experiences of non-white, non-straight, non-male people in the United States to bother having them be separate at all. And one little program in part in a huge university. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's definitely white violence. Like part of the reason why I just, I have to say this as somebody who studied history as somebody who, you know, like really uh, just not just cares about this stuff, but who, who has tried to dive deep as much as I could in college and whatnot. And as an adult into why this stuff matters uh, the ignorance around the roles and histories of people of color and of uh, like gender and sexual minorities in the United States are 
I don't, I don't particularly like that term, but I can't think of a better one right now. Um, the ignorance of those histories is what enables assumption, presumption, stereotype, and violence, right? Like, like that ignorance is at the base of that pyramid of hate that we're talking about. And it, it doesn't have to be intentional, but it's necessary. Well, I mean, if you, if you wipe the book, if you erase the book, you get to write whatever you want inside of it, right? Exactly. Exactly. And it's funny, I, I remember an argument I got into in college with, uh, with a friend of mine, a guy named John, which, John, if by some weird coincidence you're somehow listening to this, I, I assume we've both grown a lot since then. But <laughs> I, got, I got into this being huge... being very generous to John. You know, I, I, I hope people will be generous to me, so I'm, I'm trying. Uh, <laughs> I asked him, I, I was having an argument with him about history and about like why there weren't why we didn't study black inventors, why we didn't study women inventors, why we didn't study, you know, what queer people had done in history and whatnot. And we started on inventors, but we also talked about other things. And he was like, well, you know, maybe the reason why women and then like black people aren't included that much in the history books is because they just didn't do anything. <laughs> and I was just, I was flabbergasted. And like, I'm, I'm pretty certain I lost my shit. Um, and just like started like yelling. <laughs> um, but like, and like, even I've heard people espouse this idea, even in what they think is a charitable way. Like, oh, you guys were just too oppressed to contribute to society. Like, no, <laughs> no one has ever been too oppressed to contribute to society. No one has ever been so oppressed that they didn't make or create. That's human nature. Absolutely, everyone yeah. did that. Whether or not you choose to recognize it, whether or not the dominant society chose to embrace those inventions, those thoughts, those creations or whatever it's a completely different story than whether or not stuff was done but yeah. so many people this is a college educated young man right like we were both in college at the time we we're at the same college at this time this was not a stupid guy but he genuinely believed that he genuinely believed that he didn't know about this stuff simply because it just hadn't happened and that's how that's the ignorance of, that these programs exist to fight against and consolidating them is an act of white violence the only thing those programs have in common is that they don't fit in with the white heterosexist cisgender version of of you know american discourse that's it that's- right and one of the things you said if i can paraphrase you is that like the fact that again out of all of these programs that could have been cut or con- consolidated right because there's mm-hmm. still going to be some stuff mm-hmm. it is it is in itself white supremacy that this entire this you know overwhelmingly white institution chose mm-hmm. to consolidate what few little sort of trinket, all the, 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 the few number of water fountains that they had sprinkled around mm-hmm. uh, were, are now consolidated to one. Yeah. And I, I do want to say this about Eastern. My, my issue with Eastern in particular on this point, isn't that, I mean, they, they actually aren't an overwhelmingly white institution. Eastern was striving for a long time to become an HSI. That's a Hispanic serving institution. Oh. Um, over when I left there, Something around 34%. I don't know what the status now, but when I, when I graduated uh, like three years ago now, uh, something like 34% of students identified as either a student of color, uh, an LGBTQ student, or a student with a disability. Wow. And there were, there were many students of color on that campus. Um, there were many, like there was, a, there, was a, there was a lot going on to increase diversity. And so the fact that they aren't that they're consolidating things that are necessary to serve that diversity. It's disturbing to me. Right. I do want to say, like, I guess offer the small sort of bit. I don't want to lump everyone at all the administrators and all the teachers at Eastern into a singular box. Oh, not, be- not. 
Not of because course. I'm trying to say not all Easterners, because meh, whatever, but because, <laughs> <laughs> or not all Eagles, I guess, but really just not because there are there are members of the administration and members of the faculty and staff who I know also share these concerns and care about these choices and who have been listening to students and um, listening to, I'm going to plug real quick, the Multicultural Coalition of EWU, right? A group of students there currently who are doing the work to get this eyes on this issue. I'll try to leave a. I'll, I'll try to put a link in to them too, if I remember. One well, and to be honest, I, I I was just making jokes. I wasn't trying to you know simplifying to make mm-hmm. it really really clear what's going on here. But yeah, I mean yeah. The, the reason I heard about this and when you brought it up, I even knew anything wasn't because I had read the Black Lens story. Is because I have all these friends who are faculty and staff or in school at Eastern, just sort of and and at other institutions actually. Like word is out, people are distraught over this loss, and so yeah. yeah. It, that's important to say too. Yeah, it's not a. It wasn't a monolithic decision, and that's actually what kind of what makes it so unjust is that it was probably a decision made by a very small number of people. It certainly seems that way. Hmm. Okay. Wow. So um, we, haven't <laughs> even t- we haven't even talked about the actual protest yet. We, we haven't. Well, so I had a question, and actually, I found out a new bit of information today. People march to the courthouse, and it's it's peaceful throughout. There was a little, mm-hmm. and, but there was tension though too. Like there was mm-hmm. things, and this is this is what Absolutely. I heard from people that were there. I was I was personally not there. Uh, in contrast to later in the night when there were fewer people. Mm-hmm. Uh, things actually were thrown at the cops during the quote unquote peaceful part of the protest. There was a potato yeah. thrown. There, was a- there were some rocks thrown. <laughs> yes. Things were thrown. So there was the idea that there was zero violence on the quote unquote good part of the protest. And mm-hmm. it was chaos and anarchy and anarchy. Very, like literally our sheriff called it the, the product of Bustin Antifa. socialists. <laughs> Which can I just say right now, firstly, like Antifa is not an organization that coordinates buses to go anywhere. Like that's just saying, saying Antifa is an organization that does this is like saying, yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something comparable. Right. Well, and and hope and and but that's you know there's there's a chunk of the population that is just absolutely convinced there's Antifa super soldier Manchurian candidates like getting ready to be like you know I I could be one I probably am one actually this 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 recording might actually signal to all the Antifa super soldier Manchurian candidates to uh, that'll just like pop know, up rise up super agents are coming but. But it just showed such a profound ignorance of what that thing even is to not just it's a profound ignorance of the structure, but then just like calling mm-hmm. it Antifa, Antifa socialists, because while generally Antifa's on the left, it's mm-hmm. not all socialists. It's, it's not. not whatever. That's that, and that's not that's neither here nor there. It was just like, you're not even trying, dude. Mm-hmm. But that's that's I'm, we're already getting ahead of ourselves. Sorry. So let me go back to the potato. <laughs> so the potato gets thrown, you know, so there's there's violence at all phases of this and the, the and the violence sort of morphs. But. Rocks got thrown at cops that day. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was not a part of the narrative. I had not because I wasn't there, I had to hear about that from like three or four other people who were there mm-hmm. as we've been sort of processing this. And that did not that did not make the news at all. Right. So mm-hmm. but then the and I, I, I wasn't sure what kind of law enforcement officer this was. It turned out it was the it was the jail guards that took a knee. Mm-hmm. So I asked you the question if if that was just optics, and maybe now that it's the jail guards, I don't know that it's necessarily that might change things. But um, I did want to have a conversation about because this has happened in a it's happened in, in Spokane among a certain subset of law enforcement officers. It's happened in a few different places across the the country where during these protests, seemingly as a show of solidarity, mm-hmm. uh, law enforcement officers have done the Kaepernick and taken a knee. So I don't know how you feel about that. 
Well, let me let me back up and mention the whole thing about about violence and, and cops and whatnot. I think it's really telling that people want this dark black and white story. Everyone was always orderly before and then people lost it afterwards, like after the sun went down or whatever. Right. I was watching, I wasn't there, but I watched a live stream that featured the potato. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh yeah, at it. It was on camera. The, <laughs> the potato was on camera. <laughs> it's just a random thing. I'm, I'm not laughing because I, I think people should have necessarily have things thrown at them, but because honestly, like who just has a potato? Like, just ready to go. <laughs> like, and I, <laughs> I would suggest on like the hierarchy of comedic fruits, potato is a pretty high like fruit vegetable. It's like one of the funnier fruts and vegetables to throw, I would say. I mean, like, you come up to it with like an eggplant or something. I don't know. I yeah, laugh pretty yeah. hard for an eggplant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a bizarre thing, right? And it happens, but also like like very seriously now, like rocks were thrown. And and the police, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know the difference between who was police, who were prison guards, and who were not prison guards, up uh, uh, jail guards, and who were other types of law enforcement. Yeah, like sheriff's deputies and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, right. So to me, all I'm seeing is is they're just all police, just broadly, they are law enforcement officers with guns and badges. Cool. Yep. Um, the fact that they were able to um, keep their cool in a situation where projectiles were thrown directly at them, yep. but seemed unwilling or unable to keep their cool when there was the threat of property destruction, you know, right. when, when they were not being threatened, but simply property in their presence was being threatened. Like that, that says a lot to me. And not only that, so that's, this is very good. I'm glad you're saying this because this is triggering something for me. One person, and everybody agrees, the number of people actively causing destruction were very small. Yes, the, yes. The and beginning, middle, end, and whatever. And then not only that, but a bunch of protesters came in and linked arms and prevented people from doing further looting. So they were they were pr- trying to stop people from taking things out of the Nike store. And those are the people that got gassed. Yes. And then law enforcement said, we couldn't tell who were the looters and who were the non-looters, so we just <laughs> gassed everybody. Right. But earlier in the day, to your point, when the cameras mm-hmm. were on and the crowd was a hundred times bigger, mm-hmm. they said we couldn't tell who threw that potato, so we didn't gas anybody. Right? Yeah. Isn't that exactly isn't that the key distinction here? Yeah. Well the, the, the first response is we're not going to escalate this violence because we don't know who the perpetrator is, versus we don't we're going to escalate this violence. Because we don't know who the perpetrator is. Exactly. And to be perfectly frank. Because they didn't want to know, right? Because I, right. you know, if you see people linking arms in front of an establishment, they're probably not looting it, you know? Obviously. Like, I'm, I'm just going to throw that out there. And and so, I'm, again, I... Should, they might be playing Red Rover. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I wasn't there. I should say that all of my information has came from live streams and uh, of friends who I followed throughout the day to sort of check up on their safety and check up on what was going on. Yeah, and I, I should also say the same. That all of my knowledge comes from very, very unhealthy internet habits in the days since the protest as well and checking in with friends. So we're, we're both in the same boat. Nice. Um, but I think I feel like I have enough information uh, that I've consumed enough footage and, and talked to enough people who I know and trust who were there personally to say that if law enforcement had wanted to distinguish looters from non-looters, they could have. That, that was something that it was within their power to do. Yeah. Um, now, what guided their choices? I'm not going to like pretend to know, but I, I think we should ask them. <laughs> Right. Yeah. 
And we should at least get an answer, right? And that's, that's one of the one of the frustrating things. And I I don't really want to talk about Antifa, uh, but I do think that we should talk maybe about why it matters whether or not these people came from out of town or in town, because that was the other dynamic, right? It was not the, mm. not just that it turned violent after dark, but that it was quote unquote outside agitators. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, one of my favorite podcasts called uh, um, "Citations Needed." So I'm going to try to link to this episode in the show notes as well, and I'll send it to you too, Jack. I think you'd love it. Mm. It's a media criticism podcast that sort of traced the history of the outside agitator as a concept, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it has a deep deep history it goes it is a history that goes all the way back to the revolutionary war uh and it but it very much had a had a tradition in black oppression uh so can i do you want can i read that james baldwin quote real quick yeah please go for I sent it you earlier let me find it hold on this is uh, the part we're gonna cut out <laughs> let me find it okay go ahead what were you gonna say i was gonna say there's also a point that we didn't get back to because i i doubled back to talk about looting and then you'd ask actually asked me a completely different question and I'm, I don't remember what it was. Uh, what was the question? I don't. I don't remember. Oh no! <laughs> we lost a thread of conversation. Oh, it's fine. Um, oh wait, was it? Was it the optics of the cops? Yes. The, yes, that's what it was. I do want to return to that because, and I actually I called that out in the in my previous episode because it meant it was so that sort of that discussion was so meaningful to me it stuck with me. So let's return to that, but let's do the James Baldwin thing first since we're already okay. here. Yeah. So, and I might, I might end up shortening this or I might try to actually find a recording of it. Nope. Cutting in here to say there won't be a recording because it's from an essay called East River Downtown from an essay collection called Price of the Ticket. It reads, what I find appalling and really dangerous is that is the American assumption that the Negro is so contented with his lot here that the, that only the cynical agents of a foreign power can rouse him to protest. It is a notion which contains a gratuitous insult, implying, as it does, that Negroes can make no move unless they are manipulated. It forcibly suggests that the Southern attitude toward the Negro is also essentially the national attitude. When the South has trouble with its Negroes, when the Negroes refuse to remain in their place, it blames outside agitators and Northern interference. When the nation has a trouble with the Northern Negro, it blames the Kremlin. Hmm. And I just, that seems like almost exactly what's happening here, right? So two things, trying to sort of pacify what's happening by saying it it wasn't us guys, don't worry about it. But, um, and actually this podcast brought up something that I hadn't really thought about. What it also means is... (laughs) The, the power of uh, an outside agitator for the mm-hmm. people in power mm-hmm. is that it means you aren't doing anything wrong. People are coming from outside. It's not the people mm-hmm. you have power over who no. don't like you. It's some outside force. Who, who's right. getting into your business who doesn't like it, but you know, yeah, don't worry about exactly. them. Their grievances aren't valid. They're not from here. Yeah. All of, all of our people in, in Spokane are happy. And you know, love and life. It's mm. these outside agitators that are coming in to cause problems. Yeah. So it also then takes this protest because it, it really did seem, and this is where the knee thing was happening. It's like since this wasn't a killing in Spokane, it's so much easier to take a knee, right? Because it's yeah. like, it's not about you. I'm it's not about directly. Some, it's about these other guys. Yeah. It's so easy. And when even there was a, an article, I think, in the Spokesman where. Uh, or no, is it the inlander Daniel Walters? I don't want to get that wrong. That talked to Chief Meidel mm-hmm. about uh, George Floyd, and mm-hmm. Chief Meidel was like, "Oh my God, he's this this cop is doing all these things wrong. I just wanted like sh- I wish I could just shake him and say you're doing everything wrong. You're killing this man. Whatever mm-hmm. this tech this technique is incorrect." Mm-hmm. 
And then a day later, a photo of a Spokane police officer kneeling on a different person's neck in yep. almost exactly the same way yep. comes out. And he has been silent about that knee to this point. And let's, let's like, I mean, like if we dig into that, there is a, there is a, a distance that you can have when the inciting event didn't happen on your home turf, but they can't have any distance from the system of policing. And that's what's really being protested right now. Right. Um, so it's simultaneously like, yeah, it's not us, but yeah, no, nah, it's, it's y'all. Right. And that's what, do you think they missed the point of the protest? <laughs> Very possibly. And maybe the media also missed the point of the protest. I mean, I'm not going to speak for the police department. I'm, but, but yeah, I think the media definitely, they, they made it clear in a lot of their articles that a lot of, of key media figures have completely missed the point. Um, I, because I hear all these things like Austin, you know, erupts in protest over the death of George Floyd. It's like, no, it's the continual death of black people. It's yeah. the continual death of black people. It's not the death of one black person. It's this is the latest event in a 400 year history. George Floyd's murder was an inciting event. It was not the cause. Right. Um, and and we can't forget him. And we also can't forget Breonna Taylor. And we also can't forget right. Ahmaud Arbery. And we also can't forget Trayvon Martin, for God's sakes. Like, you, you can keep, you know, the names just keep coming. And that's what we're on about. I find myself um, really, you know, I'm going to say a thing that I can't believe I'm saying. I really wish I could have a dialogue with our local police officers because I really wish I understood better what's going on in their heads. I really yeah. do. Not not because I think a conversation is going to solve everything. I'm not a kumbaya person who says, if we could only sit down and get along, we could solve all the issues. There's some things that just need to be broken down and systemic racism is one of them. And our current approach to policing plays a role in that. It needs to be recognized and talked about. Um, but I do often wish that I, I feel like I'm existing in a different reality from other people in this equation. And I, I want to understand their realities better personally. I'm also going to put out here that I don't call on anyone else to try and understand their reality. I don't think that it's the job of black people right now to pause their grief so that they can understand the mind of their police chief. Um, right. I don't think it's on citizens and, and just residents of a, of a community who have lost um, and felt terrorized by these systems to, to pause and go, okay, but have some empathy I think now is the time for people to just grieve and have that. So I just want to make it clear. Yeah. That's a personal wish. Right. Um, I also, mm. uh, to the optics of, of the officers taking a knee, um, you know, as I said before, I didn't necessarily realize that these were uh, jail guards. I thought they were um, SPD. And there there's so many uh, law enforcement agencies at play, right? So one of the things that I noted was that these cops didn't just willfully come out and take a knee. That's not what happened. They first paraded out in full riot gear, like in formation, and then lined up, you know, and I saw this on camera. In a show of force. In a show of force. And then later, after a crowd of thousands of people chanted and yelled, take a knee, a couple of them, not even all of them, but a few of them dipped their knees and touched the ground for a split second and came back up. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't stay down there. They didn't remove their gear. They didn't in any way lessen the show of force that they were making. It was, it felt, I don't want to seem cynical because in the moment I, I could feel the power of that moment, but also as I reflected upon it, I recognized the very practical um, 
element of crowd appeasement that was taking right. place. And that's not to say that like none of these people in any way believe that there was anything that, you know, point to this protest and they were just sort of secretly, you know, hating everybody and just did that to keep from getting in trouble. Like, I don't know. I don't know what was in their heads, but I do know that they were decked out like soldiers. Uh, and that it was very much a show of force they engaged in. And that, um, importantly, that knee doesn't mean anything on its own. Right. It with on its own, it is a photo op. And I'm not saying that there is no meaning that could be had from that moment, but the meaning to be had is in what happens after the knee. You know, is are there changes that are made? Do people see a difference in the policing? Or is it just this bubble in time in which some people took a knee and it felt good, but then life goes on and continues and people are just appeased. Like that, that is the difference. And I think it was really interesting to me to see the various reactions. I had friends who were deeply touched, who cried when it happened, who cheered when it happened. I was conflicted when it happened personally, when I just watching it live um, on a frontline camera, I was, I was very conflicted. I was definitely somewhat in awe. Another friend of mine was angry, just filled with rage, absolute rage. Huh. Um, she did not see it as a positive moment. She saw it as appeasement and she was yeah. angry and I think terrified that people were going to be appeased. Hmm. And so, I mean, there's, I think that needs to be discussed. And, and I also want to say, this is not to say that people should not engage in symbolic gestures. Right. Right. Like this is not to say that no one should ever take a knee um, or that they should not have, you know, done that. Like that's not the issue. It's not to say that no one should ever hang a pride flag above a municipal building. Like these symbols that mean so much to a community, they mean something because they're of what they're intended to say, which is we see you, we hear you, we recognize you. That's what taking a knee or raising a particular flag or doing any of those things. That's what it's supposed to say. It's supposed to be an acknowledgement of, you know, the message that, bo- that gave birth to that symbol. Symbols are meaningless without context. It's, it was in some ways, it was the, one of the more important symbolic acts. It was a promise that you said they broke five hours later when they, when they decided yeah. to gas those kids in front of the Nike store. Absolutely. And I mean, I guess, I guess I didn't repeat that here because now that you've informed me that they weren't necessarily the same police, um, yeah, I feel like this that's a fair point. Doesn't hit as poignantly, but at least at the time, if if you were to view them somewhat monolithically, taking a knee is a promise. It's a promise to to acknowledge the value of Black lives. It's a promise to behave and police in a way that doesn't hurt the people you're protecting and serving. To then turn around and gas and, and shoot rubber bullets at peaceful people is to break that promise. And, and well, I've been seeing some photo evidence of people who've gotten hit by rubber bullets in other cities. Think, well, actually I saw somebody with a pretty gnarly puncture wound in Spokane mm-hmm. in, in their calf. It's, mm-hmm. I saw it too. Rubber bullets are, I mean, they're not nerfed. They're called less lethal. Yeah. They're not called. <laughs> they, <laughs> I think they used to be called like uh what do they used to be called? They used to, they, they've, they've gravitated to the term less lethal because it's pretty clear that you, if it, hits just right it could kill somebody absolutely Absolutely. it's destroyed people's eyes it's uh blown out people's like just ripped the all the skin off people's foreheads Mm -hmm. (sighs) so about the let's call it just the nighttime protest 
Because the people that ended up getting gassed and pelted, some of them had been engaged in acts of vandalism. Most hadn't. <laughs> and yeah. then the police chief later said, like, the proof that these people were uh, highly organized, like this was an like a, like a highly organized insurgent action, mm. was that everybody had milk. <laughs> when <laughs> the biggest the biggest volley of tear gas I saw mm-hmm. was literally in front of the front door of the Rite Aid, which is the only place you can get milk in downtown Spokane. <laughs> and it was oh, like, well. how would? And it was like, and the the the, uh, the the sort of unspoken assertion was that, well, how how would they know to do to put milk on their eyes if they'd if they weren't highly organized? It's like they've been watching the news for the three days of protests where everybody was putting milk in their eyes. The rest of America, it doesn't take <laughs> like human humans are actually incredibly smart and resourceful creatures <laughs> on our own. We're better in groups, but we're pretty smart by ourselves. You'd be like, "Ow, my eyes hurt. I'm going to go in this the closest door to me and buy some milk." <laughs> Look, a right aid. I honestly, I can't, I can't stop laughing because I, I didn't know about the right aid. Right, literally. <laughs> I mean, I know which one you're talking about. Um, oh man, and I've been inside that right aid so many times. Um, God, that makes me laugh. I, I think that's hilarious because it's almost like saying, you know, I can't believe this, you know, this highly organized group of like concert fans have all coordinated with each other to bring to bring earbuds or to bring, you know, earplugs right. <laughs> or something like that. Like that's what it, it makes right. me think. Of. Oh, absolutely. Well, and it also says like it, it, it's what they're trying to do. And it's, I'm sure it's some sort of, it's probably unconscious or semi-conscious. This calculation would mm-hmm. be like, this has to be coordinated because people couldn't be this spontaneously angry on their own. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like, a, it's a, it's a, diminution or that's a terrible word i'm going to try to use a different one i'll cut this out Uh, it's like it's a diminishing of the the importance of what happened and what we were what people were responding to yeah well and it's not spontaneous it's it's there have been years and decades literal centuries for these feelings to be to to boil up there's no spontaneity about this right so one of the things you said about the people who reacted so negatively to some broken windows and a little bit of uh, stolen athleisure wear from <laughs> <laughs> Nike that was probably made by uh, wh- children working in sweatshops in Bangladesh, by the way, um, <laughs> was that if people's support of this movement or the community that was expressing this frustration, this rage... Mm-hmm. was conditional on that community's behavior or the con- or the behavior of every single member of that group. Mm, mm-hmm. And it was never really support in the first place. And I'd like Absolutely. for me to just like tee off on that a little bit because I thought it was brilliant. So like we keep seeing, I keep seeing these messages or these posts that are like, you know, you lose all your legitimacy when you let people riot or when when people start breaking things or stealing or whatever, whatever. Which like, Without even, like, we don't have an argument about whether or not stealing is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Like, okay, cool. Um, but, like, the notion that somehow this a single member of a giant, vast, and diverse community of people who are upset about uh, systemic white supremacy, like, that if one member reacts in a way that you don't like or don't want, that now you are... You are okay. You're going to withdraw support for the fight and you are now okay with their oppression. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. It's 
if we're going to acknowledge that everyone is an individual, right? And that includes all of the police are individuals, all the sheriff's people are individuals, and all the protesters are individuals. Some are going to behave right. in ways that are that you agree with, and some of them are going to behave in ways that you don't. And we can even talk about like the difference between the individual and the system, because even as I said, all the police and sheriffs and such are, are sheriff's deputies are individuals, like they're individuals, but they're part of an actual system, you know, hired and fired and put on a payroll. Um, you can you can speak to that more monolithically. Every single protester, though, is is not a part of the same like group or club or whatever, and so they're, we're all going to have different approaches to how we address this issue. If your support for the cause of Black Lives is contingent upon no Black person ever making you angry, then you don't support Black Lives. You don't. You simply want to be in control of their oppression. I'll put it that way. If, right. if you want, if you want black people to behave in accordance with your behavioral codes to get your support in their fight for their lives, then what you're saying is that you want control over their oppression and how they express mm-hmm. themselves. What does that say then, in your mind, about the people who were at the good protest, the daytime protest, who immediately disavowed the nighttime protest? I think. I think it's it's complicated, right? Because there are I saw that message from from black people and white people and non-black people. I saw that from people who are still in the cause, right? So I think it's possible for people to disavow the the evening protests and still be in the fight for black lives and still be an ally. Um I would there I would probably have a really complicated conversation with that person and and we'd probably have to like sit down and have coffee or whatever but like i don't necessarily assume that that person automatically is no longer allied with with the cause especially since i saw frankly several black people say similar things yeah um and they're not leaving you know they can't they they can't leave the movement any more than they can leave their skin i guess i shouldn't say that it's definitely possible for a black person to be against the movement i'm not going to pretend that we're a monolith we're not but I, i wouldn't say that of every person what i will say is is that when I saw that attitude coming from from white people, and in particular when it wasn't just I disavow these protests, you know, non-black me saying I I'm going to separate myself here from whatever happened in the evening, right? But also I disavow these protests, and also I think the movement has lost legitimacy. That's that's going a bridge too far, and that's when I realized that that person was probably, uh, you know, they were they were only they were in it for themselves. This looks respectable. Right. This looks the way I want it to. So I'm going to be in it. Now I'm out. Um, well, and do you think that, is there any sense that the, 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 the black folks, and again, this is, might be too much. You might not want to do this. This would be putting, you know, you're speculating about a different a person other than yourself. But do you think there was a fear among the community that like, holy shit, we finally got their attention. We have to be respectable. I mean, I can tell you somebody in the black community felt that way. Like, I guarantee yeah. there were members of the black community that felt that way. You know, I, there's no unified feeling I can point to, but do I know black individuals who who had that impulse of, oh, we got their attention. Okay, everybody's tighten up your your you know your belts and, and fix your ties. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that's that's actually sort of something that you're you're raised. I know I was raised with and born with. You know, my parents told me. Um, I okay. I always tell this story. It's sort of a cheesy pop culture reference, but it was super powerful. You ever watch Scandal? Uh, yeah, I do. Okay, 
there's this moment in Scandal where her dad, um, where Olivia's dad starts uh, laughing at her because he asks, you know, what did he promise you? He being the president, you know, Fitz. What did he, what did he promise you? And she doesn't answer, right? So he's asking, what, what was the quid pro quo here for you to be essentially his bed wench is what right. he's asking. It's, it's really a dark scene. And, uh, and she's quiet. She doesn't say anything because she knows where this is going. And he just starts laughing like cruelly. And he goes, first lady, he promised you'd be first lady. And then in an instant, he's, his face snaps serious and he goes, you have to be what? And she won't answer. Like she refuses to answer. And, he, and then he starts yelling, goes, you have to be what? And she, and she they're like whispers, the character who never whispers, she goes, twice as good. Yeah. And, and he goes, twice as good to get half of what they got. And like, when I, when I saw this, I'm not like a, a huge scandal person, but when I saw that scene, I literally like, I lost it. Like, I was just like, oh my God, this happened. And I immediately got online and like texted like my two closest black female friends. And was like, did you see the episode? It was like, they referenced the talk. They referenced the talk. Wow. And the talk is the twice as good speech. Every single black person watching that show knew the end of that sentence. As soon as he said, you have to be what? My own mind went twice as good. And so to your race with this mentality, you do not get to screw up. You do not get to be angry. You do not get to... Um, give white people an excuse to not take you seriously. Therefore, uh, there is a, this this sort of strategy that that we've all been raised with of you know being respectable and and straightening our ties and tightening up our belts and tucking in our shirts and and the impulse is then in a moment like this when we finally have some attention from you know the powers that be, whatever, white America, et cetera, there are going to be members of the black community who go, oh, shit, we need to be twice as good now. Can't screw this up. Yeah. And I wonder if there's this sense that this is the sort of thing that comes around once in a lifetime, you know, an opportunity to really stand up and make your voices heard. And people were worried about that chance getting missed mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I There's... I mean, I don't know what to say except yes, yeah. There's this moment, and and everyone wants it to go well. Everyone wants it, us to be able to make the most of it. Um, everybody's hoping for change. Some people are more cynical than others. Some people are more hopeful than others. Some people. Everybody's got a different approach, whether it be a, an impulse to respectability or an impulse to okay, we got their attention. Let's keep being loud. Let's keep breaking things, or let's keep doing whatever it is the tactic that we feel is is the best in this moment. Um, and that, that's a whole internal discussion that just keeps happening. But it's a very long way of me saying yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could end it there then. We go, let's go back to the beginning where you said, for some reason, and you seemed a little sheepish when you said this, that you're cautiously optimistic. You said you, I think you said you've got a little mm. hope. So what, what makes you hopeful right now? What makes me hopeful is that I'm seeing the complete uproar of the situation has given a lot of people permission to put their daily lives on hold, to make this their priority, to make justice their priority. Um, the reason why people aren't out in the streets all day, every day, 
before, you know, the murder of George Floyd was because people have to pay rent. People have to live their lives. People have to go about their business, raise their kids, get food, make meals, buy groceries, all of that. Like just the business of living. And and that business of living is easier or harder depending on, you know, your own life circumstances. But this situation, this uproar, and to a certain degree, COVID, honestly, has uh, disrupted grind culture a bit. And it's disrupted the rhythms of our society. And and then when you add to that all of the, the, the explosive responses that we've seen across the nation, we've been given permission to put some of our daily concerns on hold and prioritize fighting for justice. And I'm seeing people do that. And I have to believe that means something. It's almost as if the system of uh, living is a tool of control in itself for a lot of people. And now that that, that tool's broken down, we've got, you said given permission, but it's also like people are taking it, right? People could have stayed in their homes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That, yeah. That does give me, man, I, that actually, that gives me help too. <laughs> I'm Give glad. Got to share my candle. Oh man, <laughs> this is a good way to end. Let's, I'm not going to, no, no right. more. Jack Archer, thank you so much for coming my on pleasure. the pod. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Bye. Thanks again so much to Jack Archer. Last thing before we go, if you go to the protest on Sunday, please look out for each other, take care of each other, and come home safe. Okay, wait, one last thing. Like we talked about, there's a protest tomorrow. Like there was a protest last week. And like the protest last week, some shit might go down. And if it does, you're going to immediately hear a lot of people rushing as hard as they possibly can to come up with the simplest possible story of events. But there's nothing simple about this story. There's nothing simple about race. There's nothing simple about racism. There's nothing simple about the the structure of white supremacy that's been built up over the course of 400 years and more. And there is certainly nothing simple about the ways individuals oppressed by that system will react to it, even today, even in Spokane, Washington. And so if there are people rushing to find a simple story or easy answers for whatever takes place, whether it's perfectly peaceful or there's some violence, God forbid if you are one of those people looking for easy answers or to just dismiss an action or a group based on their actions, to call them thugs perhaps, that's a pretty invoke term right now. I got one more little quote from our boy James, James Baldwin, about people who like to simplify incredibly complex things, like white supremacy, for example. Get him, James. It's a great temptation to simplify the issues under the illusion that if you simplify them enough, people will recognize them. Mm-hmm. I think this illusion is very dangerous because, in fact, it isn't the way it works. You know, a simple thing cannot be, a complex thing can be made simple. You simply have to try to deal with it in all its complexity and hope to get that complexity across. <laughs> Got his ass.